0: Today, on episode number 393 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Anne Gagne joins me to talk about aligning our values through accessibility. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art, and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Anne Gagné, is an educational developer with a focus on universal design for learning at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and a sessional instructor at George Brown College. Anne has also worked as a curriculum developer and instructional designer and taught in person, Blended and online courses. She has a PhD in Victorian Literature from the University of Western Ontario, a Master's in English from York University, and a Certificate in Curriculum Development and Instructional Design from Mount Royal University. Anne is passionate about inclusive and ethical pedagogical strategies and works with instructors to ensure curricular and pedagogical accessibility. You probably know her, and you'll hear about this on the episode, as the person who always talks about alt text on Twitter. And as a side note, so much more. I'm very grateful for Anne and for all of you to get to hear this conversation with her. Anne Gagne, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thanks for having me, Bonnie.
0: This has been a conversation a long time in coming. I'm so grateful to get to have this continuance of a conversation that's been really special to me, although has up until this moment taken place exclusively via social media. One of the treats you gifted me with about, I don't even know, three or four months ago is the pronunciation of your name. It was so powerful that I literally have never forgotten it since. And there's a lot that I forget on a daily basis. So would you teach it to everybody else? Because I think it's both a cool thing, but also good for us to think about for our own names.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm, I'm glad that it, it stuck. Uh, so because of my last name, sometimes when I get folk who call me or even my students, they're not, they're not quite sure how to call me. So I get a lot of like, you know, Dr. Gagne or sometimes, you know, I'll pick up the phone and say like, is Ms. Gong there? And I'm like, oh boy, I don't know. So uh, one, one semester early on in my teaching career, I was in the classroom and uh, my students were asking me like, well, how do you pronounce your last name? And so I said, you know what? And I thought about it for a bit and I said, so i turned on the board and i wrote down gone and then hyphen y a y so gone yay and i said this is how you say my last name hopefully not how you think about me after 14 weeks and they all burst out laughing and they never they've never forgotten it since and i use it every semester i'm sure people will probably if they've have friends that are have been in my class before they're probably you know used to the old joke but i think it's it's effective <laughs>
0: My husband and partner, Dave, he has a similar thing for our last name, which I, I borrowed, is I'm standing in front of a stove, but I have to stutter a little bit, so Stahove, and I'm cooking up two dishes. I'm cooking a capital letter E and a yak, which I always make the joke taste just like chicken, which, you know, is one of those hearty har-har jokes, but Stahove yak So I've got one, too, and it do, it does work. It creates that little mental picture for people.
1: Right, absolutely.
0: So we are going to start out with one of the many, many things that you've taught me so much about. And I feel a little bit like, I don't know if you know this game in arcades from when we were little. I think they still have them in arcades. Um, Oh my gosh, no, I'm forgetting the name of it. There's like a hammer and there's little um, groundhogs that pop up from 12 or so boxes. Like whack-a-mole. Like whack-a-mole. Oh, it's a mole. It's not a (laughs) groundhog. whack-a-mole. So I feel like you're a little ma- a whack-a-mole on this, uh, on this particular point. We're going to be talking about something that's called alt text. That is, uh, we'll, we'll get into what that is and how people might use it. But I'm going to begin with a story about a starfish and then we'll come back to alt text because I think there's some parallels here. So this is a story which many people have probably heard before that's kind of brought up a lot in terms of when we want to make a difference. An old man walking along the beach came upon a child sifting through debris left by the night's tide. Every so often, he would pick up a starfish and toss it back into the sea. The old man asked him, what's the purpose of his efforts? The tide has washed the starfish onto the beach. They'll die unless I throw them back. The old man looked around miles of beach, or in your case, Anne, miles of tweets, tweets and (laughs) tweets and tweets. There are more starfish than you can ever save. You cannot make a difference. The child bent down to pick up the tweet, I mean the starfish, and sent it back into the ocean. And then he looked up at the old man, smiled, and replied, I can make a difference to this one. Anne? You make a difference. Tell us what alt text is and why
1: we should care about it. Oh, that's uh, that's very kind of you to say. And uh, yeah, following that story for sure. So I'm, I'm going to start by, and this might be something that you want to put maybe in the show notes. There's a really great uh, Twitter thread by uh, Connor Scott Gardner. Um, and Con- Connor does a lot of work um, on advocacy at all texts. And in that Twitter thread, uh, Connor did a really great job of sort of uh, emphasizing why alt texts are important to blind folk who are navigating Twitter. And so alt text, uh, I guess, simply put, is uh, where you describe the image that you're tweeting out, right? So a lot of us tweet out images, like, you know, maybe even selfies, infographics, little cards that we create in Canva to promo our events that are happening on campus. And, you know, folk usually just attach these to Twitter and then they send them out into the Twitterverse um, without an alt text. And without those alt texts, all of that information is just visual. So uh, when folk are interacting with uh, the Twitter, as I like to call it, then people that can interact with it visually in that way will be able to receive all of that information. But uh, folk who use screen readers, for example, will not because there's no description for those images. And so basically, alt text allows you to put a, a description of what you're tweeting out in terms of the image, right? So that that goes for images, for GIFs, for infographics, and any of that sort of, like I say, those, those Canva come to our event things that that folk send out
0: and i we've been mentioning twitter but what other kinds of places might alt text show up
1: yeah. So you can all text in Facebook if you're still on Facebook. I know a lot of people might be. I'm not. Um, there's, uh, you can all text on, info, uh, in, on Instagram, for example, and all the social medias. And then also, you know, when you're creating a website, you'll need to have uh, those, those things indicated as well so that when people are navigating through your website that they can get that information
0: because of your influence on me i i also discovered i'm 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 now looking for it so i'll use a tool and if it's even decently accessible they do seem to have alt text so i've been sending out since january 2021, I moved over my email marketing services and I realized, oh gosh, that I've been putting these quote graphics in in these emails, and I didn't even know that there was an alt text. I just went went looking for it. It wasn't particularly discoverable because I first have to upload the graphic, then I have to go back and click on it. But not only did I discover there that I could add the alt text, which is now very important to me, but also there was another neat thing where on the email, then people could click on the quote graphic and it would take them to the episode. So when we're exploring, I don't know if it is it called
1: metadata is alt text included under the universe of metadata? Yeah I think I mean it could be and and that's a really interesting topic that you bring up because you know there are definitely really I, I would dare say heated conversations about the role of alt text, right? So um, on, on on a base level in terms of like a foundational level, the alt text is there to help increase information to the you know the most amount of, of focus possible but then there are a lot of um people especially in this marketing field where they see alt text as just another place to kind of like increase their seo you know and so if they have if they have that information there then you know it'll allow for more clicks and so on right and so you know this kind of gets to the to the ethics of alt text right like why are you alt texting are you alt texting cuz you want more clicks or are you alt texting because it's just you know general generally like good information to to the most you know to have right
0: yeah i was thinking about for the i first started doing transcripts for the podcast for ethical reasons i well and i i i want to be clear too also for practical reasons there were people who were saying that they can't even share it with their faculty unless it has that i just wasn't i wasn't clear on it a lot of podcasts back then didn't have I mean I've really seen tremendous changes but many yeah. many more now have them yeah. but I I and this is all funded out of my own pocket so the most really cool thing that happened was I sent out an email to a listserv that I belong to because if I was going to spend the money out of our personal bank accounts I just wanted to make sure that it was actually going to meet the needs so I just said to it was to faculty developers hey if we were to do this you know, this is the kind of thing that we're thinking about. There would be plain text on the website, but then also a PDF people could download, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Is this kind of what would would meet the needs or whatever? And I said, you know, before we spend the money and the literal first email I got back, I'll never forget. It was from James Lang right. offering that the book series from West Virginia University Press they would sponsor they're oh, this is how much it'll cost you. We'll just pay for that. And so the first, I don't don't know, first 200 or so transcripts, if you look at the little bottom, they're sponsored by them. And then now there's an organization that continues to sponsor them now so that I don't, we don't have to be out of pocket anymore, but we can still have that as a resource. So sorry for that little tangent, but I started out with the ethics of it, Mm -hmm. but then even just from a personal thing, being able to search and as your own little knowledge base is, is really powerful for me, too. And if, if PDFs are accessible and then they can be searchable through many uh-huh. of our technologies, both on our local computers as well as on cloud services, et cetera. So, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah.
1: And I mean, even the pedagogical aspect of that too, right? Because more and more folk are using multimodal uh, assignments. And so if a podcast is a possible resource that the students will be using in their courses, then having that transcript just makes it a lot easier if they're writing an essay or, you know, creating a report of any sort, then yeah, they, they, that they can easily bring in that information, right?
0: Yeah, let's go back a little bit to Twitter, because I I have learned so much from you. It is not super apparent (laughs) that how this whole thing works, as in how would someone even know that something had alt text? And if they knew that something had alt text, how would they see that alt text?
1: Right. So you you are absolutely correct on that. And I think that's part of the that's part of the, I guess the issue, right is that it depends on what you're using, right. So people have different phones and people have different browsers. And in some instances, if you're on, um, if you're on a desktop, depending on uh, the browser you're using, if there's an alt text, sometimes you'll get a little uh, a little black box at the bottom that says alt that indicates that. But when you're on mobile sometimes, at least uh, for me for iOS, there's no real way of knowing if the alt text is actually there so what i end up doing um i have two i have two two or three strategies for this so what i end up doing is either i use the accessibility features um on my iphone to do a voiceover so i go voice over the image to hear if there's an alt text there or if i don't if i can't at that point um what i will do is there's an alt text bot and there are many of them and there's one that i use um and if you send it to the tweet then what the alt text bot will do is that it'll read out the alt text that it's, that's, that's there and send it out as a separate tweet. Or if there is not, then it will return a no alt text with a sad face. So more often than not, I get the no alt text as a sad face. And then if I'm on a desktop, I just use the inspect function. And sometimes I can see if there's the image alt text on there. But you're absolutely correct that there's different ways to go about this. And none of them are very intuitive.
0: And what should we be thinking about? We've been talking about it as the creator or the poster of whatever it is. So if I'm going to post, I mentioned the quote graphics, then I should include alt text in whatever medium it is I'm using. What about though, just as someone who's sharing other people's content, what should we
1: be thinking about there? So, I mean, people have different ideas on this. I'll share what my philosophy is, which is that, you know, you want to model, right? So I You'll notice that if you go on my Twitter, I never share anything that doesn't already have an alt text because I don't want to perpetuate that. Information inequity, right? If it's something that I feel that that folk really need to know, like so, sometimes early on in the pandemic, there was some like COVID information that was really important without alt text. I will write the alt text and send it out and say, "There's no alt text on this image. This is what it says." Um, but I really, I really don't share content that doesn't have an alt text, just like I wouldn't share like a video without a caption because I don't want to perpetuate that. Now, people have different, uh, you know frameworks for that, right? Like some folk will, will do it and then write their the alt text for the person. And that's one way that you can certainly go about that. Um, but my my philosophy is is that and and I I'm I'm not sure exactly I mean, I I do know, like I do this because I just want to model well, right? Like I want to show that, you know, if you're putting content out there, I don't want to share with my like 2000 some odd folk uh, because I want it to be accessible to all 2000 some odd folk. Right. So yeah, that's, that's my, that's the way I go about it in, in, as my practice, but you know, other people might have different ways of doing it.
0: Yeah. We've been getting that sort of the, edges of your values, but I'd like us to center ourselves on them for a bit. As you think about accessibility and your experience and and knowledge, what are some of the core values that come to mind for you that you like to be contemplating both in the long term, but also on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis? Yeah,
1: so I mean, ethics has been really uh, a large part of my research and uh, the work that I do and my work as an educational developer for a very long time, right? And anyone who knows me will know that I often say that a lot of the values and the ethics that I have are things that... I really got from my uh, maternal uh, grandfather, uh, who was really just, you know, a fantastic human, and he taught me everything um, that I need to know about being a fantastic human, I guess. Um, and so for me, um, my, my ethics really started with this idea of an ethics of care coming from Nell Noddings, where it's all about relationship building, where it's all about just really listening to others in, in a in a way that that makes sense, and you know, amplifying but also modeling uh, what you would like to see, right? And so, if it going back to alt text, if it's just making sure that information is accessible to everyone, then then that's great too. It's just to me, it just comes down to inclusion, right? Like, who do you want to include in this this discussion? And I mean, your answer should be you know everyone, and who is being excluded? By whatever practice is being put into place, right? So for me, those are those are some things that I that I think about as I try to like navigate not only like the Twitter space but um, my own work and research as well.
0: Would you share a story about your grandfather that you think is emblematic about his values?
1: Oh dear. So, um, my grandfather was the kind of kind of guy that uh, would help any anyone with anything. He's such a good hearted person, and I feel that i I'm kind of that way too. So like if someone was having, you know, their car broke down or whatever, he would rush over and and fix it. Or, you know, somebody, um, a lot of this stuff will will center around cars because he was always like in a truck. So somebody was like, you know, ran out of gas or whatever, he would go and like help them uh, do that. And he was very much like that with the family too. So like if the family needed anything, uh, he would help. And he also taught me just like really just um, good land stewardship as well. He was he had his little garden in the back and, you know, to, to respect the... The the land that we're on and and, uh, how to grow things to to help, you know, nourish the family and and those kinds of things. So a lot of those uh, stories uh, really stick with me um, as I as I get older. I mean, pretty old now. Um, But uh, I I really remember uh, all of the things that he taught me. He's, He's a really great guy.
0: And you mentioned Nell Noddings. His name's been mentioned a couple of times before on the show. I'm not super familiar with his work. So if you were going to try to introduce people to his writing and, and his work, what, what would you kind of point us toward to learn more?
1: So uh, Nell Noddings, uh, her, uh, is, is, a, what, is, a, is a feminist. And uh, she has uh, a book, the, the sort of foundational book is called Caring. And it's come out in uh, a couple of different uh, editions, but it was basically like an approach to ethics and moral education. So Nell Nodding's work is very much about like, how do we how do we navigate our educational spaces in an ethical manner? And, you know, going back to that, how do we build those relationships uh, in, a, in an ethical manner as well? Mm.
0: And are there favorites of, of hers that you would point us to to get started, uh, a book or...
1: Yeah. So I think, I think caring would be the the book that I would suggest. That's pretty much the the foundational uh, text. And it's, um, I think it was published by like uh, UC Berkeley Press or something like that. So I think.
0: Okay. You've shared a little bit about your values and how they have been shaped. Are there other values that come into play as you think about your day-to-day work when it comes to accessibility?
1: Well, I mean, just thinking about the people that have influenced me, and I think my thinking. Another person that comes to mind is uh, a dean that I had in my previous, at uh, my previous uh, work. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Maureen. She might actually be listening, so hi, Maureen. Uh, Maureen was uh, Maureen was really great uh, because we w- used to have a lot of conversations about like EDI, uh, which is how I'm, the acronym is different in the states, but in Canada we say EDI. Uh, we used to have a lot of conversations around EDI um, and about like what was happening in institutions around that. And she would always remind me, um, she'd say things like, Anne, they don't know what they don't know. And and I love that line. Like, I carry that line with me. Again, like we were talking about, like, the ethics and what we carry. Um, I try to carry that with me because, you know, I always remember what Maureen was saying. It was like, it is true, right? Like, sometimes folk just don't know what they don't know. And so I want to try to kind of maybe help guide them to some of the accessibility practices that... Will help them know, right? Um, so, yeah, and and she was very, also very, some very someone who was um, about thinking about asking me who's in the room, right? Like who's in the room and who isn't in the room, and who's part of this conversation and who isn't part of this conversation. So, that's those are also some things that really resonate with me when I'm in my work as well.
0: Well, that definitely comes out in your work. I I try to be cautious in terms of my own learning because I'm, I'm aware that I don't want to be expecting other people to educate me. And yet on Twitter, you can get a lot of education just by being very quiet. <laughs> so I have Twitter lists set up. One, for example, is a Twitter list I set up with people that are in the disability community. And that just... They don't have to they don't have to be purposefully educating me. I'm not asking them to spend any additional time that they wouldn't otherwise be spending on that platform, but I have really been able to glean so much so I love that you really do have both a, a gentle spirit about you while also an incredibly righteous and a good way you know that these this is the right thing, and so I see you being angry in what feel like very real raw ways because you want us to be better. And yet you are incredibly gentle as a teacher. And you, I consider you to be someone I have just learned so much from as a teacher. I'm appreciative of that. And I'm thinking we we could spend a few minutes then, since you are investing your time and you're here anyway, (laughs) you're talking to thousands of teachers now as we think about the classroom, which of course the classroom can look a lot of different ways, lots of spaces and places where learning might be taking place. What are some of the key areas where you would like us to do better when it comes to accessibility? Where, where, where should we, if we were going to do a self audit and we only got to audit if, a few things, what would be some of the low hanging fruit where you just assume that we don't know what we don't know?
1: Right. Thanks for that question. So, uh, in my role, um, I was hired to kind of help support universal design for learning, so I have a lot of conversations with faculty around that. And the really great thing about universal design for learning is that it intersects well with some accessibility practices. And also, the the good thing about you know thinking about those accessibility practices is uh, you know that also intersects well with you know, the ideas of trauma-aware and trauma-informed. And I know you had Karen Costa on not so long ago and who does really great work in that field. So uh, for me, um, one of the things that I would think about, you know, I mean, there are a few things, right? So choice models, right? So um, accessibility is, you know, how are you building in choice models in your in your assessment strategies and in your activities, right? Um, are all of the activities and all of the assessments premised on a single thing? Like, are they all text-based? All they Do they all assume that folk will be able to participate immediately in a conversation for five minutes sustained without, you know, any prompt or practice or whatever, because that's not that's certainly not doable for for a lot of people. Right. So choice models is one thing. And then, you know, that goes into to modality as well. Right. So how are the students, um, you know, showing that learning right and demonstrating that learning? And, and are you open to different ways that that learning is is being shown right so can they submit a podcast because they feel much more comfortable talking to you know a camera for 20 minutes than writing an essay but both of those things will hit the same learning outcomes right um and then there's just like space considerations i know that we we think about our classroom spaces um like physically right and th- there's some things you can do just look at your classroom space like are there things that are in the road like are there bags on the floor that people could trip over or are those kinds of Things and you could you know always ask like hi you know like this isn't uh, you know an alleyway can you maybe just move this over so that you know people there's there's some clear space. But we also can do these space audits in our virtual spaces too, right? So are you doing a live course uh, over Zoom or whatever? Maybe you're using Teams. um, Is captions available, right? And if you, if captions are available and if they're automatic uh, captions, being aware of the fact that those automatic uh, captions and transcripts are sometimes not great and they need to go, you need to go back and edit them um, for them to be like usable. For anyone going forward, right? So there are a lot of like little things. There's things about documentation, the way that you present the information to the students in terms of having headers and in, in Word documents and uh, and you know tagged PDFs and those kinds of things that that can be part of the like sort of the preparation of your of your pedagogy, the preparation of your curriculum over the year. That if you start getting into a, a routine of doing that, it'll just become sort of like second nature. And this is a thing that you just implement in your classes.
0: Yeah, if we could talk a little bit about the headers and Word documents and I know that our first intent should be for accessibility purposes. (laughs) So if you could talk more about that, but also the side benefits, if we go and we use headers and and subheads, etc. There are some side benefits that make it to me worth the time, even if we didn't care about accessibility. Would you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. So when you um, create like a Word document and you use the header function, say in Word, it, it helps sort of guide uh, the reading. Like, so oftentimes I, if you're tabbing through your document, those headers allow you to see both like what the big headers are and then the subheaders and you can tab, tab through, um, you know, you can use that to create a table of content so that something is a lot more easily navigationable. And so it, to your point, it's not just about, you know, creating a document that's accessible, right? It's about like creating a document that's accessible, but it's also creating um, information that's easily, or like a a bit easier to navigate, right? Um, And it will get you to the information as, as quick as possible.
0: Yeah, we were working on a report with some colleagues recently. And the other thing that's really nice is that if you're using it specifically in Word, although this also shows up in web writing that we do as well, is that if you change your mind or APA changes their mind and all of a sudden it's a different it's not italics anymore. Now it's a different font size or whatever it is those changes can cascade throughout either an entire web page through what's called CSS mm-hmm. or on your word document w- through what are called styles mm-hmm. and once people kind of get that i mean so now it's good for everybody <laughs> and then we, we've got we can carry that forward across to save us time and you could redesign an entire website for example and say now this this is going to change the size or whatever across all of your Word documents, you know, change the, some of the styles that are, get applied. So there's a lot of really good things to, to dig in there. Would you speak similarly about PDFs, some things that people may not realize about accessibility as it relates to PDFs specifically?
1: So PDFs have a little bit of like a mixed review, right? So some folk like PDFs because you can use like, you know, Adobe voiceover and go through, you know, the, the document, if the, if it's been, if it's been formatted properly. So if you format from a word, to a pdf um using like save as and make sure that uh, everything is selected and you end up with a you end up with a pdf that's a, that you can go through like i said with that adobe voiceover some folk like it but again like with anything right like with anything when we have conversations about accessibility when when we have conversations about disability one is not always the size for all, right? So there are some real sort of like accessibility issues with PDFs with some folk. Um, some of them come from the fact that like, if I have a low bandwidth, a PDF is a lot larger than a Word document. And so if I am like accessing my course from the Wi-Fi at a fast food restaurant, Um, it's going to be a lot easier for me to get that information on a Word document than it would be on a PDF. So that's the one. But then just from like an accessibility point of view, uh, EPUBs um, are are, becoming more and more uh, common and also are becoming uh, like sort of like the more accessible option uh, for folk. And you'll notice that there's a lot of books, for example, and even articles when you look at academic articles that are both in PDF and in EPUB. And so this kind of goes back to that choice, right? Like for some people, this is going to work really well. And for other people, this other option will work really well. And so we really need to get into the sort of mindset of like, this is a thing that we can do. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this particular thing is going to work for everyone. We need to be open to the fact that this might not work for someone and we need to support that.
0: I know one of the tensions out there, and I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit on is if we do have our values aligned we we do want to do this stuff right but it can really feel overwhelming especially for people who don't have a lot of confidence around their technological skills which they they perceive as really being intertwined with this stuff and i find that sometimes then it's gets translates to, well, it's just too hard, so I'm just not going to do it. And you spoke to that earlier as far as, as just setting up habits. And I'll tell you that it's really helped me kind of get over the hump a little bit where it's just, okay, transcripts, they're going to be on everything. Captions are going to be on everything. And then you do start to develop a rhythm. And a lot of the technologies are making it easier and easier to go in and make those adjustments like you talked in. But would you speak from both your experience and also working with so many faculty of how do you navigate this tension? And then how do you advise others to navigate this tension between all, kind of that all or nothing mindset? Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's important, I think, just to start somewhere, right? But also knowing that it's an iterative process, right? So if you start somewhere, you don't have to do all of the things all of the time right off the bat. Um, but if you start again, getting into those habits of of doing things slowly and starting one semester with something and one semester with another thing, you'll get into those into those habits as well. Because I really do want to acknowledge that there's a lot of folk that have been asking things like, you know, when is this going to happen? And with with the pandemic, there was such a rise in all of these sort of accessibility supports that happened. Like we saw captions happening. There were events with carts, even with cart uh, captioning, even virtually. Right. And it was great because these were things that folk in the disability community had been asking for forever. And so it's important to kind of, it kind of, It's sad that it took a pandemic for that to happen, but it's important to kind of start somewhere and to also just be cognizant of the fact that like somewhere, someone is waiting for this, right? Like somewhere, someone needs this. And if you don't have the the space or the capacity to do that right now because of workload and all of that stuff, you know, maybe flag that and see if there's someone else that can can help you with that, but start somewhere because like I said, someone is waiting for it and they really need that to be able to engage uh, with what you're putting out there.
0: This is actually a good time to transition into the recommendations segment because I have something that I'd like to extend in terms of starting somewhere. I have been really inspired by John Warner in so many ways. He's been on the show and, I mean, such important tools for us to help ourselves become better writers and to facilitate others doing the same he has a wonderful newsletter which I have recommended in the past where you can send in the five most recent books that you've read and then he'll write back on his sub stack what he thinks would be good places for you to start next I haven't ever written him the most five recent I've done but I have so much fun lurking on his suggestions for other people but one of the things that he's done through that is he's set up a bookstore an affiliate relationship on bookshop.org, so all the books that he's recommending, as well as he's got other lists up there of his favorite reads for different years and things like that. And for a while now, by the way, bookshop.org is a way that we can support independent bookstores either as a whole or we could go in and specifically identify this, for example, this Black-owned bookstore that is near me I would like to support or what have you. And I've had this on what the Getting Things Done methodology calls the someday maybe list. It's been on the someday, someday, someday <laughs> maybe list. And I just haven't moved forward on it. And you were mentioning about starting somewhere. And I kind of did a little bit of that. I've had a really busy week and I, I didn't Sometimes I think it's okay to allow ourselves to procrastinate with something fun like this. I'd been sitting on it for so long because it felt so big. And then I thought, well, how long would it take just to set up an account? Not that long. Mm -hmm. So I did it. And then I was once I was in there, I was like, oh, okay, well, I could set up my little affiliate thing. And then I I realized I had to get it approved. So then now there's a teaching in higher ed affiliate thing, which, by the way, I'm not recommending today because I have some work to do. I'm trying to start small and start somewhere, but I just started playing with it and and all of that. So what I am recommending today is that people go over and visit John Warner's account on bookshop.org. And hopefully I've got some of you curious that, you know, it's... I might have something for books that are recommended on this podcast, but it's, it does really come back to what you said of just starting somewhere and sometimes starting somewhere means from this point forward. Correct. So if you haven't been doing captions and that's something that you know, you ought to be doing, do it for commit from this day forward. I am going to have captions on all of my videos. Then when you get that rhythm going, then we can go back by the time you go back. A lot of times probably need to re-record that video anyway it's probably been a while right so i just wanted to echo what you said in general about starting somewhere in lots of different ways speaking of which by the way my intent on doing this is to support bookstores that are local or bookstores that are specifically black owned or or that that represent my values better than him, some of the larger bookstores right. that, that I have uh, linked to in the past. I am not going to go, back. I don't, we, I have close to 400 episodes. I'm not going to go back to every single one of those pages right now and redo all of those links, but I'm excited about the possibility for, from this point forward, doing something, and this I feel really good about. So I, I just wanted to echo that recommendation, and I have a couple other things I'll share just really quick as far as recommendations go for the episode. I have a post I'd like to recommend from Katie Rose guest Pryall, and the post is called Can You Tell the Difference Between Accommodation and Accessibility? It's a really good read, very short but really powerful. One of the things she writes is about the accommodations model, and I'm quoting from her now requires us to disclose our disabilities. It requires us to explain, to give up secrets we might not want to share. The accommodations model depends on invasions of privacy to work. Very powerful post. And closely related to that, there is a Twitter thread that I'd like people to go read from Dr. Kate S. Kirby. And oh, this one just... Right, in the gut. There's been so many good conversations about extensions, and I don't have all the answers. I suspect Anne and I could probably do five episodes just on this topic alone and only be getting started. But this particular point that she's trying to make is, and I'm quoting her here from her tweet, some faculty say, well, they should tell me what's going on. Then I'll consider giving them an extension. And she, she continues, okay, but would you share with a professor that you were pooping blood? Five professors? Someone you hope will write you a recommendation letter? Would you share with a faculty member that you were hearing voices? And, And she goes on, and since I didn't set us up, there's some really heavy topics that I didn't prepare us well for for this conversation, but I encourage us to go and read this. And honestly ask ourselves if we would be willing to disclose some of the horrific things that she describes next in this thread. And I will tell you, there's a lot of heavy, heavy content. So if you're ready for it, um, go over and have a look at that and really just ask ourselves the question. And I would even say we should be having these conversations with each other. One last thing, and I'm going to pass it over to Anne. And that is just lots of other discussion around deadlines, as it relates to, yeah, great for those of you that have a nice, tidy, little, teeny-tiny course load and you're teaching... 40 students for the whole semester and just how these deadlines, um, there are no easy answers with this, but we do need to be thinking hard and specifically about any kind of policies that would require people to disclose things, acting as if, well, hey, it's just me. Of course, you should be willing to disclose that. Um, We really have to have some serious conversations around this. I hope this will just be piquing people's interest in continued conversations on teaching in higher ed. So, yeah, Anne,
1: um, (laughs) I'm going to pass it over to you. Thanks for that. I would also echo that you should follow Kate on Twitter because Kate also has like a really great uh, thread on um, do you know how the accommodations process works in your institution? And so that, you know, that was also a very powerful thread because a lot of folk don't. Right. Um, And so uh, Kate's a really great advocate for a lot of things. And I would strongly suggest everyone follow her on Twitter, but my suggestion is this lovely book, Um, Which is uh, massive, yes, I know. Uh, It's called Disability in Higher Education, a Social Justice Approach. Um, And it's by Evans, Abroido, Brown, and Wilk. And it's, as I say, it's, it's pretty massive. It's like a textbook. It's 500 and some odd pages. But it's really great because it talks about the history of disability studies. It talks about different um, student populations and, and things to think about in terms of pedagogy. And so, if you haven't read anything, you know, if you haven't read any critical disability studies work or anything like that, and you're just kind of looking like, give me a foundation, right? Um, that's like your 500 page foundation. (laughs) So, so there's that, that was my first thing. And then I was thinking if there was another thing that I could uh, suggest, but I'm going to suggest a thing. That's not like, you know, it's a, it's a thing, but it's not like a book or, or a website or anything. My second recommendation is call your friends we are all so busy in this pandemic and, you know, some folk have a lot of like familial and and work and other kinds of responsibilities. And I feel like we haven't had a time to kind of connect with all our friends. And some of us may have lost some friends over the pandemic. And I just, uh, you know, in the, in the interest of being trauma aware and trauma informed, you need community. And so Call your friends, like not all of them, because that would maybe be a lot and annoying, but maybe call a couple that you haven't uh, heard from in a while and see how they're doing.
0: Mm, Thank you so much. And Gagne, I've been delighted to get to have this conversation with you today. And I want us to continue it both on Twitter, where we get to mostly connect, but also have you back because I feel like we're just getting started. Thank you so much for both what you do for me and so many others there and also now contributing to this community. Thank you, Bonnie. Anne Gagné, thank you once again for being a guest on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. The show notes are over at teachinginhighered.com slash 393. You can also subscribe to the weekly update for Teaching in Higher Ed over at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And once you do that, then you'll be signed up for the weekly email that comes out with the most recent episodes, show notes, and recommendations and some bonus recommendations that don't show up in the episodes and also quotable words. And I hope you'll go over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe and be on that weekly update. Thank you so much for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. Thank you and Gagne once again for encouraging us to start somewhere. See everybody next time.